HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good morning and welcome to Heritage Radio Network. This is The Line and I'm very excited today to welcome my guest Ryan McCaskey. He's the chef and owner of the two Michelin starred Acadia restaurant which is located in Chicago. He's a native of Saigon, Vietnam. He was raised in the northwest suburbs after coming here as a very young boy. And he has worked at many fine dining restaurants in Wisconsin, Maine, and Illinois. He has also been nominated for the James Beard Foundation Best Chef Great Lakes Award three times now. Uh, Ryan, welcome to the line. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I wanted to start off by talking about your restaurant, Acadia. It's located in the South Loop of Chicago. It's pretty close for those of you that that are listening that know Chicago. It's sort of close to Soldier Field. It's close-ish to the aquarium. Uh, How did you end up choosing that location? Uh, When you opened in, it was 2012, correct? Yes. Um, it, It wasn't really an area known for fine dining and also not really an area known for restaurants, right? Exactly. So how did you decide on that area? Well, first of all, I live across the street, which makes it real, real easy. Okay, that's the deciding <laughs> right, factor right. right there. Uh, I've been down there about 15 or 16 years, and uh, you know, I did a lot of research looking around different areas of Chicago, and you know, everyone kept saying that the South Loop was going to be the next big spot. And I wanted to be a pioneer. I wanted to be, you know, the first one down there, really establish uh, myself. And, uh, you know, so I chose down there. You know, some people will say that I'm either going to be a genius or an idiot because uh, I'm kind of the only one down there right now. So you're still really kind of one of the only ones down there. And when you started thinking about Acadia seriously, uh, when you went looking at spaces, what were you thinking about space-wise? A lot of people are always interested in like how the vision of a restaurant comes together. Did you think to yourself, I want it to be X number of seats with this tall of a ceiling? Or did you just go into spaces and let them speak to you? What, what was exactly. your process like? It was very uh, organic and it was very gut-feeling kind of thing. I looked at a lot of spaces and looked for a good few years. And uh, 
based on the space or the look of it or the feel of it or whatever, um, I kind of formed concepts around that. Now, obviously, I wanted to do you know the food I'm doing, but there were a lot of variations. You know, I looked at a space in the West Loop actually uh, quite a while back, and it had two floors and it was really high ceilings. And I thought about actually doing a little lounge upstairs and a bar and then the restaurant downstairs. So, you know, that obviously I, I wasn't able to do with the space I'm currently in now, but, um, but it all worked out, you know, it was, it's about 5,000 square feet. So we had a lot of wiggle room to, uh, to play with. Right. So I know that it's so big. So how did you kind of subdivide that? There's a, there's a sort of a bar area that right. you, there's a different menu, right? Dining room. How big is the kitchen? Like, how did you orchestrate well, what, who got what space? So <laughs> this is uh, this is actually a, a funny story, but I actually designed the kitchen first. Uh, many nights drinking champagne at Pops or Champagne, local hangout and friends of mine. And I would draw uh, the kitchen on napkins and um, and I knew what I wanted in my in my mind. And, you know, the kitchen came together and then everyone kept saying, you know, you still have to have room for like the dining room. You know, because it kept getting bigger and bigger you drew and bigger. Forty seven hundred square right. foot kitchen. It was this giant kitchen, and and everyone kept saying, "Oh, Ryan, you know, you, you know, you got to think about like the dining room's real estate and those seats are money and everything else." And so it it kind of came together. But the nice thing that uh, that happened, I think, the happy accident was the uh, the bar area. The bar area I didn't really intend to be geared for the neighborhood. But it just turned out that way, and it's it's a great neighborhood spot, and and the duality of the whole space now is is you have the you know the fine dining and the tasting menu stuff in the dining room, but the bar is is casual, it's fun. Yeah, I love how the bar came into play because you can come into your restaurant, you can have a hamburger right up front, right, and then in back you can have a ten course tasting menu. Exactly. So um, when you when you did decide on that, were there other people? Do you have investors or um, partners in the restaurant that were a little hesitant to have you have something very casual up front and have something at a much higher price point, sort of adjacent to it? Right. No. I mean, first, uh, it's just me. No okay. other partners or investors. So, you know, I'm making all the decisions and putting it all on my my shoulders, which I guess I like. Yeah. Uh, but no, the whole idea originally was uh, with my sous chef. You know, I didn't really. I wanted the bar to be an area to just kind of wait to sit in the dining room, kind of a waiting holding area where maybe somebody could get a cocktail before they sat down. I never even really thought about doing food up there, but my sous chef was saying to me, like, you know, we should just do like a kick ass burger. We should do, you know, whatever it is, just be the best at at that. You know. And and I fought with him a lot on it at first. I was like, oh, man, I don't want to do a fucking burger, you know. Everyone does a burger, you know, and like maybe he's like, oh, we should do a lobster roll. It's like Maine inspired. I was like, man, I don't, you know, I don't know. And, uh, and then, of course, you know, we said, okay, well, let's sit down and let's think about it. If we're going to do it, whether it's casual, whether it's high end, let's just be the best it, it can be. And that's kind of what we did. So we did research on, like, different cuts of meat, and the burger came to be, and it was, you know, one of the better burgers, I guess, in the city. So what type of burger is this famous burger that everyone is raving about? Yeah, it's uh, part uh, chuck, part brisket, and part uh, A5 Wagyu fat. So each element of uh, beef brings something to the burger. One, you know, the the brisket adds water, the chuck is kind of uh, the backbone and the meat, and then of course you get the fat from the A five. So, so when you're making these decisions, and it's only you, that's 
an intriguing proposition because you're the first last line of defense. <laughs> right. But also, besides your Sue and you know, besides your family members, sure. who are you bouncing ideas off of? Do you, um, you know, it's such a massive undertaking to launch a restaurant, and sometimes there's too many cooks in the kitchen, literally figuratively, and other times there's not enough. Did you? feel lonely at all during the planning process or was it freeing you know it's interesting because it's kind of the way i wanted it i always said you know i wanted to be able to make the decision if it was a bad decision um i'll take it if it's a great decision we'll take it um i wanted that responsibility but at the same time i think you're you're right it's it's a weird uh isolation and loneliness a little bit because you don't go you know i don't go home to like a wife and talk about oh the day or i don't sit around with partners at a table it's myself it's a sous chef uh my general manager and i who are very close friends uh jason pra is um is my manager and sam we pretty much hash it out but that's it mm-hmm. you know and a lot of the ideas are are coming from me that's awesome because of what we just mentioned, which is that, you know, on a dime, you can change the menu, right? On a dime, you can change the tablecloths. There's not really a lot of other people right. that are factoring into those decisions. But I am curious, you know, how daunting was that during the planning process of the restaurant? I mean, were you the point of contact for builders and, Everything. and architects? I right. mean, like, had you ever taken a restaurant from nothing to opening before? No, this is my first. Uh, I've only been involved with, I think, maybe one or two openings, mm-hmm. uh, but this from literally the ground up. I mean, we were, we were putting in pipes and windows and stuff. Uh, it was just a blank concrete slab, basically. Do you and do you learn that as you go? Or you just you, learn it. Yeah, it's one of those things where, and again, living across the street, you know, I was there every day with the, the hard hat on and sitting there with the GC and the contractors and the subs and just there, just doing it. And you definitely learn as you go, and you know, you, you have to. You know, you're forced to do it because um, things have to move quickly and you got to get open and, you know, you got a whole business to, to do. But um, it was it was daunting and it was scary and it was kind of like, oh, shit, let's just hold on and see what happens. I mean, that first year was a whirlwind. We, we were doing 160 covers a night, 130 covers a night for a high end restaurant. That's kind of a lot yeah definitely you know? it's a lot of plates to put out if you're right. doing a five or a ten course tasting menu it's a huge amount of plates right. to put out um but we were we, we just learned as we went you know we actually didn't start tasting menus until about six months in mm-hmm. it was just a la carte and you know big portions and the whole thing and you know we let kind of the the customers also dictate what the restaurant would be you know obviously we had the guts and the bones but you know customers like this it didn't like this so we 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 did that as we went you know i think really you know honestly i don't feel like we really hit our stride and and found our identity uh until maybe the second or third year that when you're saying like you know you're listening to that feedback what are the mechanisms for you getting that feedback are you going around and actually like touching tables and and actually saying what did you enjoy what did you not enjoy like how, how do you tweak your restaurant when you're so i mean you're probably trying to do payroll you're working the line right somebody goes the outlet is broken and you go well i'm the only person who knows where the outlet is right because <laughs> right, right. i built the place so like <laughs> how do you how do you manage all that like you're totally swimming against the stream <laughs> right. you know and you you're the guy so what does that I what mean, does that take i mean it just i mean first of all it takes 
hours. Yeah. I mean, everybody that knows me, I don't, I don't sleep much and I'm always working on the restaurant in some way. You know, I go mm-hmm. home and there might be a, a break and I hang out with the cat, but then like I'm back to work. Um, it just, it's just that, you know, it's a lot of, uh, sacrifice and, and thinking about the success of the restaurant, you know, all the time. And, um, and you have to keep your ear close to the ground. I mean, you know, within the industry, with other restaurateurs, with the public, with reviews, you just kind of see where you, you end up and fall into place, you know. Um, it's interesting, though, because now that I look back at it, we're five and a half years or so in, um, I think I would have actually opened with what we currently have, with the two tasting menus. I think if I had to do it over again, I would have also designed the restaurant a little differently as well. How so? Um, well, I had two ideas in mind. I had one, which is the current version of Acadia, which is, you know, it's it's comfortable, it's living room-like, but it's still very high-end, you know, all the details and amenities, things like that. But I liked the idea originally of just building a barn and having just, this, like, rafters and, like, cement floors and whitewashed, like, brick walls and just stripping it all down and then doing kick-ass food in there. You know, and I kind of, if I had known kind of where fine dining was going, I guess, um, I maybe would have done that because I like that idea. I like the idea of restaurants opening now where you don't need all the white tablecloths and the expensive, you know, $3,000 chairs and whatever. You can, you know, people are appreciating, and I think um, across the board in the industry, not in just Chicago, but everywhere, you know, that's kind of the, uh, you know, the, new, the newer thing, and I like that. You're, you're five and a half years in. Have you seen your diners change as well? Do they have a better understanding of the food you're doing? Do they still treat it as sort of like a special occasion, sort of like an oddity? Like, let's go to Acadia because it's like the fancy restaurant right. in, the, in, the, in the loop. Or, um, yeah, how have things changed over five and a half years? You know, I think uh, both with staff and diners have changed. You know, of course, the first couple of years when we opened, uh, people were curious, you know, what are they doing? We heard about it. And, you know, what are they really about? What's, what's going on over there? But now that we've established ourselves, uh, it's pretty cool in that we get – um, educated diners, we get a lot more national and international diners that come that, that, you know, really make it a true destination. Like we're traveling to Chicago just to eat there. Sure. You know, and, and, they're, and they're basing their trip the, the around. The Michelin is definitely right. helped substantially, exactly. right? I mean, people put things on their list the, the Chicago is now on the list right. of destinations, not in like, oh, we're in the United States and we're doing New York and we'll go to Chicago. It's like, no, we're going to Chicago because exactly. Chicago has a huge amount to offer. I definitely want to talk more about Chicago in a little bit, but sure. just to stay focused a little bit on the menu design of Acadia. So uh, there's this phrase that everyone is using now, which is new American cuisine. Uh, I don't know what it means, honestly. I've, <laughs> I don't know. Anymore. I've read about a thousand articles right, about right. it. Um, so I'm curious. You know, what do you? What type of food do you serve? What What do you? What does your food feel like to you? You know, I think uh, the best way to describe the food is it is really a snapshot of my 26 years of cooking. And I think after we got our second star, um, it took like a different kind of pressure, I guess. But we kind of do whatever the hell we want now. And I love it. It's like if we want to do a dish that's Italian-inspired and has like three ingredients, that's great. If we want to do something really progressive and has, 
you know, 18 ingredients and 10 different techniques, that's great too. And so the attitude, like our attitude kind of changed a little bit. saying, like, let's just do what we want, you know, and people will, will get it or not get it, you know. So um, it gave us a lot of flexibility with the menu. I mean, there were Vietnamese influences, Korean and Thai and French and Italian and, I mean, Southern, you, you name it. You know, we go all across the board. I think that it lends well to us in the story that we're telling. Uh, and same thing with the plates. You know, like everyone knows me as a, a plate guy. Um, I source plates from all over uh, the world, you know, and I find potters and I find unique pieces being made for us. So everything changes and evolves very quickly from menu to menu. You know, I don't use the same look of plates, you know. Um, and I think that's that makes us unique. Are you trying to directly draw a start and finish point of your career? Like, does it start in when you were in your 20s and right. does the meal kind of finish up now in your present day Acadia life? Or like, how do you take them on that journey where well, they know what's going on? Sure. Well, that's, I think what, uh, you know, and, and people say all the time, you know, there's tasting menus and chef driven restaurants and the food's pretty and there's garnishes and there's all sorts of great ingredients, but how are you different? And I always say, uh, we're different in that there's so much personality and it's really telling a story. And and I look at the menu as some of its parts. It's not like every single dish is going to like club you over the face and like, you know, blow you totally away. I mean, obviously we want you to be blown away and have a great time, but it's really about the whole, you know, and, and that journey that we take you on, you know, from taking you into the kitchen and having ice cream and champagne as a course to... Uh, tableside service to um, to traditional stuff. I mean, you you name it. We kind of run the whole board as far as uh, those styles, um, and also too with with the storytelling. You know, I talk all the time about you know the servers don't just say this is lobster and here's the sauce and here's this and that. It's it's about the inspiration. It's about how it relates to uh, myself as a chef or maybe my childhood or, or Maine. Or even just something that we experienced. I mean, we had a dish on the menu for a long time. Um, the, the GM and I had just gone to a, a Grateful Dead show, or further, actually, uh, as we were known. And we were super strung out. We were in San Fran. We wanted Chinese duck, you know, like $20, get some duck, go home. You know, we're in sweatpants or whatever. And I don't know. We were, we were a little crunchy. We were a little crispy at that time. <laughs> it was a dead show. Yeah. And... Um, but I forgot that, like, in San Fran, things close a lot earlier. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was like, man, what's going on? Everything's closing. And he's like, we got to find it. We got to find it. We're on a mission for duck right now. And uh, and he finally found a place that literally, they said, you have to get there in eight minutes or we're, we're, like, done. And we were leaving back to Chicago the next morning. So we're like, this is, it's like now or never. So we drop what we were actually eating at another restaurant Gave it to the table next to us. Said, hey, we didn't really touch this. Eat it. <laughs> we actually gave them our beers, I remember. Said, drink our beers, whatever. We got to go. So we ended up going to this, like, big, tall, business kind of building, um, you know, right off of, like, Union Square or whatever, and didn't realize where we were. And I remember the, the, uh, the gracious uh, GM came over and said, we're excited you're here. We're glad you made it. I think we will be really excited uh, about the first presentation of Duck. I look over at Jason, he looks at me, and I said, what the fuck? 
oh, shit, what are we in for? And we didn't realize we were at Hakkasan in San Fran, which mm-hmm. is very expensive, very mm-hmm. nice. Well, our, our $20 duck that we've been chasing all over the town for uh, ended up being like $425. <laughs> right. But the last presentation of duck, um, they served ca- a caviar course with it. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, it was great and everything was fine. And uh, there were moments of, oh, my gosh, do we have enough money to get home? Yeah. Um, but then when we got home, maybe a, a month la- later or so, I said, you know what? That was such a funny story. We told it over and over at the restaurant. I act- ended up doing a dish that was Chinese duck, green papaya salad, currant hoisin, and caviar. And it was like the homage to that, that story night. and that night. Yeah. And we even, when we brought the course out, would pipe in Grateful Dead on the, on the um, you know, in the dining room. Awesome. So people, people like, related to the story. But it was so about you, the story. You have to tie everything back together so that right. the, the thing that weaves the menu together is you <laughs> and, and those right. moments that you've had. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and then I want to dive into some more of that history, and we can talk about all those moments that inform the menu. We'll be back on the line right after this. Hi, I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine? And how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese-American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese-American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese-American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cookie machine. What better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. Welcome back to The Line. My guest today is Ryan McCaskey. He's the chef and owner of Acadia Restaurant, which is located in Chicago. Acadia has two Michelin stars, and it has evolved into a tasting menu restaurant where many of the items are homages and tell stories based on Ryan's childhood and his life as he's grown up in and around Chicago and also in Maine. Uh, Ryan, I wanted to ask, you were a part of Operation Baby Lift. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about sure. of how you arrived in uh, Chicago? Uh, I mean, the whole story is pretty incredible. And, you know, I, I feel very lucky and blessed to be here every day. 
Um, I came over, I was adopted, and came over right at the fall of Saigon in April of 75. And, um, you know, the, the, the runways were being bombed, and they weren't, they're trying to keep everyone there. They didn't want people to leave and escape. And I was, you know, a handful that made it out, you know, and was lucky enough to be uh, adopted by, you know, my great parents uh, to the Chicago area and, and really set up shop there. And, um, you know, it was just, I think about that all the time. And, you know, I try to be uh, the best I can be for myself and to push and to make something of my career. Um, because, you know, if I had stayed or if I hadn't made it out, my life probably would be obviously very, very different. So um, for respect for, for that process, my parents, myself, you know, I, uh, that's just my philosophy. I, I, I push, you know, and, and whether it's, you know, again, casual food or not casual food or any other career that I even thought about doing, um, I just knew I had to be and wanted to be the best I could be. When you were growing up in Chicago, uh, did you have, when you were growing up and you were very young, did you feel like you were just an American kid that lived in Chicago? <laughs> yeah. Was there any indication that you had been adopted and that you were different in any way and that you'd come from a different country? I mean, maybe early, you know, maybe in grade school when, you know, people are like, well, your parents don't look like you kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Or why does your last name McCaskey? <laughs> you know, and, and it was actually a, a running joke for a while when I first started cooking because it was like I was doing a lot of Italian food at the time. So it was like this Vietnamese kid with the Irish last name cooking Italian food. And people were just super confused. Yeah, they were so right, confused right, at what was right. going on. I, I actually had gone in interviews at times, a couple times. I won't say who, but I remember interviewing with a couple of, of known chefs that literally said, you're not Ryan McCaskey. <laughs> they were uh, like, I have the wrong I, resume like, here. Right. This says Ryan McCaskey. You can't I, be the guy. Yeah. You know, but, well, uh, but people as, can be idiots sometimes. <laughs> right. so. uh, um, but as a kid, no, you know, I, I didn't really think about it that much. You know, my sister is adopted from Korea. And maybe she feels differently, but, you know, I, I kind of grew up with that suburban, very Americana lifestyle, you know, like running around and riding bikes and skateboarding and, you know, falling down a lot and, you know, uh, just being a kid, you know. So how does food come to be, you know, in your life? I know that you got involved very early. There was a high school program that gave you an opportunity to right. start working with food. Can you tell me a little bit about that? And even if there was before that, if there was an interest in food and how you sort of clamped, right. on, clamped on to this lifestyle choice? Well, well, like in eighth grade, I actually remember I wanted to be an architect. And for the longest time, I thought being an architect and designing buildings was really cool. Then I found out that I really suck at math. <laughs> and you still got an opportunity to build your building, know, though. You know, 20 years right. later, you were able to pull it off. Um, but no, I found, like, you know, we traveled a lot as a family, and I was, you know, I, I, we'd seen different cuisines and food and styles, and I just, I just liked it, you know, and it was something that uh, really stuck with me as I got older and older. You know, um, even my grandparents were a big influence as well. You know, as a family, Typical 80s family, you know, we were eating, we were eating okay. You know, we weren't eating fancy food. We were eating, you know, your meatloaf and your pot roast and your spaghetti and things like that. But um, it was interesting because my grandparents had really turned me on to their garden, that garden back behind their garage. And tasting fresh produce and vegetables and things like that 
was was a very new thing for me. And a lot of my firsts were, you know, back then and, and hanging out with them. And so I was always in the kitchen. It it just seemed easy, you know, and tasting and cooking and help peeling carrots even, you know, with grandma. And that evolved into, I think, maybe eighth grade, freshman year of high school, something like that. Um, I ended up actually starting the family dinners, you know, and I said, hey, Ma, you know, uh, I got it. Don't, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it tonight. And a lot of it was trial and error. I mean, we ate some really bad food, <laughs> you know, and I, and I knew like certain dishes. Like I'll never forget. I knew what fettuccine Alfredo was and I loved it as a kid. And I knew that like the sauce was thick, but I had no idea what made it thick. I also knew, on the other hand, that breadcrumbs made things thick. So I think the first one of the first dishes I ever made was like fettuccine Alfredo, which had cream, but was thickened with breadcrumbs. It was like paste. Sludge. And yeah. you're right, right. And you know, of course my parents are very supportive and they were like, Oh yeah, this is really Really good, you know, kind of rolling their eyes like, this is delicious. Yeah, young Ryan, you know, you're going to be a great chef one day, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, but it was a lot of that, you know. And and then finally uh, high school came around and, you know, again, I wanted to be in sports. I was uh, a big athlete at the time, but I also stopped growing at like 5'7". So I said, you know, my, my tennis and football and basketball career just isn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so... You know, I just I really leaned towards uh, cooking. So by junior year of high school, there was a program. I think it was a satellite program where, you know, we only went to school for high school like three days a week. And Tuesday and Thursdays, we were at the community college uh, nearby taking cooking classes. For so, someone who doesn't love math, that's sort right. of a dream scenario, right? Like right. Get so, in the kitchen, get your hands moving. and Right. So I got it on it, like, you know, very early. From there, uh, you went to culinary school, and then you worked at sort of a staggering number of restaurants. So kind of, you, yeah. you worked at you worked under Tony Mantuano, and you worked at uh, Goose Cove Lodge in Maine, and then right. in Chicago, uh, Rushmore Trio. True. Right, right, right. So, because we don't have three hours today, <laughs> right. I, I would love for you to tell the listeners about one or two chefs at some of those Shh. restaurants that. Played a big role sure. in shaping how you've come to own your own restaurant and, and lead the kitchen. Well, I think uh, my first kitchen job ever will be my most memorable just because I was, you know, I think I was 17 or 18. It was a restaurant called The Greenery in Barrington, uh, back when they were calling it Regional American Cuisine instead of Contemporary American or New American now, as he's pointed out. So and, Illinois Regional American right. is what, like big steaks? I guess? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Mid- Midwest deliciousness. <laughs> uh, the chef was David Coling, an owner, and um, it, it was just my first experience. You know, I, I didn't know what to expect. You know, I remember peeling carrots my first day, and and just being you know on the salad station, and I loved it. I was like, I can't believe I'm doing this. This is amazing, and you know, just the culture of. Uh, kitchens and restaurants was really eye-opening for me for that first job. I was still in school as well, but um, that first job I always remember. And then, you know, fast-forwarding, uh, well, then my time with Tony Montuano shortly thereafter was was amazing too because that was a, a big restaurant that crushed numbers, uh, had a lot of structure, uh, was really hot at the time, uh, Tuta Posta uh, was the name of it. And, um, and that was a great experience too because I also – for the first time, had started networking, even at that young, young age. I remember 
you know, meeting John Hogan. I remember meeting Gail Gand. And I remember meeting, like, all these kind of up-and-coming great chefs uh, from Chicago, you know. So that was a really eye-opener, too, to, to see that networking and that bonding with other people that are doing the same thing. Um, and then fast forward a, a bunch of years, I guess my next kind of epiphany was my short time with Grant. So Grant was at Trio. I was friends with um, uh, a lot of the staff that worked there. Uh, the owner, Henry Adenio, was uh, kind of a mentor to me. And I, you know, I was working at another restaurant. I was actually a chef at a Moroccan restaurant. And just during time off or, or whatever, or, hey, can I come in and hang out in your kitchen? So on and off, I just hung out in the Trio kitchen. I stayed there, you know, I think a, a week or two, and then uh, was there for you know different events and parties and things like that. And the eye opener with that was I saw a kitchen in a totally different way, you know. So I'd already been in the uh, cooking for like ten years or something, and I saw the discipline, I saw finesse, I saw structure, I saw real inventiveness, and I didn't realize that kitchens could be like that because you know the first ten years of my career, kitchens were still you know kind of dingy and. You know, the chef's drinking a screwdriver and smoking cigarettes. And it was like <laughs> that old, you know, kind of yeah. old, what the old kitchen, you know, models used to be like. You know, a lot of swearing, a lot of throwing shit around, you know, stuff like that, clanging stuff. So now to go into a kitchen where it was like a ballet, where it was quiet and there was no talking. And it was respect and it was, you know, precision and trying to be perfect every day. That was really something that, uh, Really, I gravitated gravitated toward that, you know. Also, hey, you know, helped uh, shape Acadia, I guess. You know, when I took uh, habits from from that to to you know build the culture that we have now. You just referenced uh, Grant, and obviously with Alinea, they've you know been trying many new things. They have right. a, a ticketing system. Also, you do a ticketing system at Acadia. Um, I want before we talk about the the Chicago crew that's doing such amazing things, you alluded just then to discipline, to finesse, and also to just, you know, paying attention to small details. So I found this quote of yours, and it's about blueberry, sourcing of blueberries. I'm going to read it to you. Okay. And everyone, uh, so this is Chef on sourcing of blueberries. Main blueberries are tart and sweet and smaller and have a more compact blueberry flavor. Michigan blueberries are great, but the flavor of pure blueberry sometimes, to me, is a little muddled. And the Michigan blueberries don't have the same acid content as the main blueberry. So this is a quote from someone who is obsessed about finding that perfect, right. perfect flavor. I love this. I mean, with even though we've just met, to me, this sort of s- sums up your specificity about right. what you're trying to do at Acadia. Um in your kitchen, how do you create that ballet that you referenced earlier? What is the way that you lead the crew? You know, it's about balance. And, and I learned a lot about culture very early on, especially talking with Henry all those years. But, you know, when we built Acadia and I started with, you know, the first crew and everything, I really thought it was important to build that culture and to have balance. So, yes, we, we push. Yes, we're stern. Things get tense. Uh, my expectations are very, very high for what we do and for the staff around me. But there's a trade-off, you know. I, I also want work to be a, a place where you know people want to come and, and work. 
and a place that we can have fun sometimes. And, and, you know, we take staff on trips, we have industry parties, we throw a crazy New Year's Eve party that goes till the morning, basically. But that's kind of the, the balance. And people like understand that, you know, and, and they don't uh, take it for granted. So they understand that we can do all these cool, fun things. We could learn, you know, we just did a trip to New York uh, and went and eat at uh, 11 Madison Park, took the staff there. And like, we can do all that st- fun stuff. But you have to also, when we come into the kitchen the next day, it's, it's, a, it's business, you know, and it's have to be ready to go. You have to be ready. And you have to push, you have to give yourself you have to, I want all of it. You know, I want everything you got. I want your time, I want your dedication, I want your strive, I want all of that, you know, and and it's a tough thing, you know, and it takes an enormous amount of discipline to do that every day and to be good at it and to be the best that you can be every single day, you know, and, and, and at that level, everything's important, whether it's a blueberry, whether it's a plate, um, I get lettuce shipped in from Maine now, I spend like $400 on getting lettuce shipped in because it's like the best lettuce, you know, and and that's the level of seriousness that we that we take back there, you know. But at the same time, too, again, as soon as the last customer leaves, I'm myself, you know, and I'm I'm hanging out, I'm shooting the shit, you know, and I can be myself. And I think that the staff understands that and they respect it and they they really honestly like it, you know. They like that I'm I'm me. I don't have to be, you know, an idea of the chef or this stoic character that. You know, um, figurehead that yells and and is like, oh, this guy's just you know hard ass. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just you know because I'm I'm you know I'm getting old. I don't want to be anything but myself. But at the same time, let's push together and succeed together. You reference that that balance, and and you know Maine has come into this conversation several times. So you actually spend quite a bit of time in Maine. You close the restaurant twice, two times a year. You were telling me before we went on air. So once in summer and once in winter. Yes, correct. For two weeks. Yep. And you take, you give the staff the opportunity to come to Maine and hang out and in Acadia, right? In the Acadia area of Maine, which is what the restaurant's named after. I love the idea of you finding that balance with your staff. Um, for you, is Maine the place that you feel most comfortable? Exactly. That's kind of uh, my happy place. I'm like happiest. I tell people I'm happiest in Maine and at a dead show. That's <laughs> that's like my that's my place. But it's nice because you know we we work so hard and go through so much. And me personally, because again, I'm doing this kind of a lot by myself sometimes. Uh, that escape for the summer, it, it, I need it. You know, to recharge the batteries, to really sit and do nothing. You know, I, I read a book, I drink coffee, I watch the ocean go by, and then I get back home and I go hard at it again, you know. But those couple of weeks out there, now that I'm bringing the staff out there, I think it's really cool and it's really special to have them see firsthand what I'm talking about all the time when we're back in Chicago. You know, because, you know, I can talk about it a lot and there's a little bit maybe of a disconnect because obviously Maine's there and Chicago's here. But to actually have the staff be there and to go lobstering, we went lobstering last year. We we picked crab with the crab lady, you know, to see everything firsthand. Now the staff is like, oh, I get it. I get it. I see why he likes it so much or I see why it's so special or why these products and ingredients are special. Because, you know, they're meeting the people now, just like I had all those years before. Instead of you having to tell them the story, right. they have the story of their own at that point. Exactly. Uh, I... I 
it's really, you know, impressive to hear you kind of just making your staff your family, you know, right. you're trying to integrate them beyond the moment that they step in the door and then the right. moment that they leave at the end of the day. That kind of goes into my next question, which was on February 16th, uh, you made the decision to close a restaurant for a day. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Shh. Why that was something that you decided to do and why that, um, why you used Acadia as a, a platform to share your voice on that topic. Right. Well, I thought it, it just made sense because not only am I an immigrant and I'm, again, feel lucky that I'm even here, um, but also a lot of our staff um, come from other places. You know, we have three or four visa uh, students or, or staff. And, you know, I just wanted to kind of give a shout out to those guys because, you know what, they have everything to lose. And I thought that was something I really thought about right around when all that immigration stuff was happening. You know, these guys come here, they're on a visa, they went through the process, they went through a lengthy process, they paid a lot of money to come and work at Acadia, you know, and to learn from me and to learn and see what we're doing. And if they fail or if they get fired or if, if they quit or something happens with their job, you know, they go back to their country, you know. So these guys put a lot on the line to come there. They sacrifice a lot, and they give me everything they have, and I, I love it. Like, some of their work, work ethic is unbelievable because, you know, they do have maybe something more to lose, you know, and, and their answer is, yes, chef, yes, chef, I got it, chef. How can I be better, chef? And they just they push in a different way, you know. And so, um, you know, I wanted to, you know, the day before we made the decision to close, I said, you know, guys, this is, this is for you, you know. And, and, you know, and they, and they also got paid, so it's not like they lost money or anything. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, this is important. You know, we're, especially the restaurant industry, we're, we're, we're built on uh, immigrants, you know. And, and, you know, I remember those days, man, working at, you know, largely Hispanic kitchens. And I remember being young and saying, well, you know, what do you do with all your money? Because you're making good money here now, blah, blah, blah. And I was... You know, I was a little naive to it, you know, and and I would hear these stories of, oh, well, I send half my paycheck to my family. I have like, you know, 10 kids or something or his huge family back in Mexico. And, you know, to be here and support them and feed my kids. And, you know, once a year they go back for like a month to go see their family, or be with their family. I thought that those stories were incredible, you know, and, and, and that's some that's kind of the fabric of the restaurant industry. So, so I thought it was just kind of a no-brainer to make the decision to close. I mean, it was one day. You've been in Chicago pretty much your entire life, and you've been you know, at the forefront of many of the dynamic changes that have happened in the food industry in Chicago. Uh, there's a lot of wonderful things happening at both ends of the spectrum in Chicago. There's some really cool, what you would call like fast casual stuff happening, and there's some incredible fine dining. It's become... A destination, as we mentioned, in and of itself. What's what about the next five or ten years in Chicago is really exciting for you before you disappear to Maine? <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, you know, I think I'm really excited about seeing independent restaurants come around. You know, I think that Chicago sometimes gets a little polarized with, you know, there's a lot of restaurant groups that have a, obviously a lot of money and you know, thirteen, fourteen restaurants under their belt, but to see like true independent restaurants coming up again uh i'm really rooting for those guys because not only is that like myself but you know 
I don't know. Maybe it's just because I've known some of these guys working hard through uh, through the years and t- kind of taking the same journey I did. But um, I like the, the independent restaurant coming back. You know, back when I was coming up in the industry, there weren't really, except for a lot of entertain you, there, there weren't any restaurant groups, you know, and you just had to make it. And that's what it was. And those were the challenges. And you didn't have the other restaurants to support your flagship. So um, to see these restaurants, uh, you know, like Oriol and Elsk and uh, Smith and Loyalist, those guys I'm, I'm really just really cheering for, you know, because I think that if, if we can make it as independent restaurants and, and there's some room for us uh, along with those other restaurant, larger restaurant groups, then Chicago then I feel is, is truly rounded out. So uh, hopefully we see some more coming in the, in the future, and hopefully uh, Chicago helps support that, you know, uh, whether through the mayor or whether through taxes or whether through real estate or leases. I mean, all of, all of it ties into it. My last question, you're s- several years into Acadia. You've had an opportunity to look back and see where you started. Uh, do you think there's ever a point at Acadia where you will be satisfied that you feel like you've reached the perfect vision of what Acadia can be, or is is that an impossibility? You know, I don't. I think it's. I think it. I think I'll always be chasing it. Quite honestly, you know. I mean, there will be a time where I'd like to step back a little bit, you know, and and really take care of myself and think about other important things like, you know, family and relationships and kids and all that kind of stuff. But right now, um, you know, we just continue to evolve and. Uh, progress and be the best we can be. Now, I don't know what that means, you know, honestly. Um, it, it could mean accolades. It could mean not accolades. It could mean more business, not more business. I don't know. I just know that, you know, there's an unknown out there that we're all very excited about because we know we could uh, be better. And we're very close, I think, though, to what my goal was and my vision was for Acadia. I think we're real close to that. What is that so, specific goal, though? You know, what is that it's, it's just working together and, and having, like, service be on point but fun and telling those stories and not making mistakes and the kitchen really clicking and the food evolving. You know, the, the menus, I mean, we've done something like 600 dishes or something in five and a half years. It's, it's insane, we've, the amount of food we've done and the amount of change that we've, we've had. Um, you know, it's just as long as, like, that keeps going and and again i want to be able to sit in my dining room and say okay shake my head and say yeah this is this is what i intended you know the food's on point it was a fun journey i felt like i was taken on a ride you know the staff is friendly but yeah technical i mean the whole the whole experience you know once we do that and we can do that you know consistently and for a long time or years or whatever it is then then i might be like okay you know now i could maybe open up something else or, you know, I am thinking about doing something casual, you know, um, and, and maybe there's other parts of my life that I want to explore, but, uh, but we're not quite there yet. You know, there's still, there's still some work to be done. And, you know, I don't think that, I think us chefs though are built that way. We are never truly satisfied and there's always going to be some level of, of push within us. You know, I, I certainly don't see an end to that i just i just go chef thank you so much for being here we appreciate it everyone the restaurant is called acadia it's in chicago in the south loop uh how can they find you online if they'd like to make a reservation sure we are at uh, websites acadiachicago.com 
And uh, the reservation site is Acadia Talk. TalkTix.com. It's on the Talk website. <laughs> I, I can't remember at this Find point. Find his website. Right. Make a reservation next time you're in Chicago. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Join us here on Heritage Radio every Tuesday at 11 a.m. for a new chef or restaurant interview. This has been The Line. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.